Welcome again, everybody. Thank you guys for being here. Um, uh, that was hilarious. <laughs> that was fun. When, when Addie kept putting the thing on backwards. We watch that all day. Um, and if you're new here, my son was the one who hated every second of it, it seemed like, and almost pulled his pants down at one point. So, anyways, uh, welcome to Impact Church. Your first time here. Thank you for being here, whether you're whether you're brand new or you're here to see the to see the pageant. We're so glad that you're here today. Um, uh, I love a good story. If um, you know me or you've been around me, then you know that because if I hear a story that just is funny that I think is interesting, what I will do is I will tell every single person I know the same story. I will just keep telling it and keep telling it because it's funny. So I want everyone else to enjoy in the story. Um, so my wife, poor Erica, has to hear when I have a story, the same story over and over. So in one day, by the end of that day, she's like, okay, I've heard this dumb story eight times. It wasn't even that funny the first time, but yet I keep telling the same story because I just like it. And if you've been here, for those of you that, that call Impact Church Home, you know this because I tell the same stories. I have a Dave Roll story. I don't know if you ever heard that story. I've told that many times, right? Relax, everyone. Not telling it, but anyways. So, so you guys know, I love a good story. Just, that's just how I am. I like to hear a good story. But here's what I've found interesting about stories. Every time you tell a story, it gets a little less true every time. And no one does it intentionally. No one thinks, well, okay, I'm going to just exaggerate a little more. Here's what our mind does, and it's actually kind of fascinating. Every time you share a memory, every single one, you are not recounting the original memory you're, you're sharing. What you're remembering is the last time you remembered it. Does that make sense? So you're not, if you're going to tell the story of Addie kept her hat falling off and kept putting it on a certain way, next time you tell it, the second time you tell it, you're going to just talk about the last time you remembered it, and you're going to use your memory from the third time you remembered it. It's kind of like a game of telephone. So every time you hear a story or you tell a story, it gets a little less true simply because our memories are weird that way. They, you're not remembering the story, you're remembering the last time you remembered it. And here's what I find fascinating. When we think of the Christmas story, the story that that um, the, the kids just sang about, the story that, that whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you know the Christmas story of Jesus and the manger and the wise men and the, and, the, and the angels and the shepherds. You know the story. I don't have to teach you the story. You know it. That when we think about that story, a story that happened thousands of years ago um, that we read about in the Bible, what I find fascinating is a lot of times we get things wrong about the Christmas story. Things that we all think are true and it just simply isn't true. So I'm going to tell you Four things, I'm going to ruin some Christmas stories for some of you guys. Four things that we think, it's, or that some people think are true about the Christmas story that just simply is not factually or historically true. Here's number one, and you can write these down if you want to. Number one, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Okay? That's not, it's not his actual birthday. In fact, we don't really know when Jesus was born. Most likely he was born in the spring. So you might say, okay, then why do we do Christmas on December 25th? Why do we do that? Many, um, believe that it was actually started as a pagan holiday, which it did on December 25th, called Sol Invictus, and then um, Christians tried to like kind of take that pagan holiday back, so they made this holiday of Christmas. Some people believe that. Um, not everyone believes that. Some people believe it has to do with the winter solstice. Um, so we don't really know why, but we know for certain one thing. Jesus was not actually born on December 25th, but instead, we're, that's our way for us to just remember that Jesus at some point was born as a baby and, and us to reflect that, but he wasn't actually born on December 25th. Number two, there were not three wise men. There's, you won't find that in the Bible. There just simply were not three wise men. There were three gifts, which is why a lot of times our nativity sets have three wise men, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but, but there were not three wise men. Most likely there were maybe ten or even more than that. 
And um, when I was a kid, my, we went to a church that um, they would teach, the, the pastor from the stage and the pulpit would, would teach that because Jesus got three gifts, you should only give your kids three gifts. And hallelujah, my parents did not listen to that. And I, we had friends that did, and one of the three gifts was towels. It's like, man, if you only get three, and towels are one of them, towels are a terrible gift always, let alone you only get three of them. But yeah, so there was three, we, the reason why people think there's three wise men is because there's three gifts, but there were, definitely were not only three wise men, most likely there were a lot more than that. Uh, number three, there was no star over the manger. So I mean, hold on, hold on, hold on. There's definitely a star in the story, and, and let me explain it. When the angels came, come to the shepherd, they don't say, hey, look for this star, and you're going to find Jesus. No, they say, um, the sign will be, you will see a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, or swaddling cloths lying in a manger. The star comes into play when the wise men show up. But the wise men don't actually see Jesus until he's about two. So the wise men look after the star. So when Jesus is born, we always see the star there. It, it most likely, I mean, there are stars, I'm sure, but there's not the star that we always talk about. That is not true. That was when the wise men come, which is two years later um, when the wise men show up. That's number three. And number four, Jesus was not born in a stable or a barn. He was not born in that. See, Luke says that Jesus lays in a manger, which is true, which would, and what we tend to think is because it's a manger and hay, it's got to be in a barn with all these, with all the animals. But actually, it was very common for mangers to be kept in the main room of a village house during the time because the animals would often be housed just a few feet away. So there were definitely animals around and there was a manger, but it wasn't some barn out somewhere. And uh, most scholars believe that Jesus was laid in a manger in a guest room of Joseph's relatives. That's what they believe. Um, and you might say, but wait a second. What about like the innkeeper who turns them away? You know, that part of the story where the innkeeper says, no, we have no more room for you in the inn. And the innkeeper turns them away, so they have to go to the barn. And I would say, um, what innkeeper? Read it. There's no mention of an innkeeper. Yet a lot of us think there's this mean, grumpy innkeeper. It's like, we're sold out. And he said, there's no, there's, no, there's no mention of it. There is the word in. We do see the word in. But the Greek word for in um, can be translated to kataluma, which actually means guest chamber. So a lot of translations say the guest room. They don't even say an in. So now you're going to go home and throw away all your nativity sets that are like, this is all wrong, right? And now some of you here, uh, you came here because um, your, your kids or your family was up here and you heard there's a hot chocolate bar. And then after service, we're going to set this up where you can get Christmas pictures in front of the Christmas, the, the present. So some of you came here for that, you're, and you're not sure if you can believe any of this Jesus stuff, and you're like, see, this is why I don't know if I believe this Jesus stuff, because all these things about the Christmas story, you just proved are all false, and yet here we are talking about Christmas. But before we jump to any conclusions, here's what I would say. Every part of the Christmas story that we get wrong, every part of it is just because we don't read our Bibles. If you read the story, in your Bible, you will see, oh, yeah, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say innkeeper. It doesn't talk about a star when the shepherd's there. It doesn't do that. If we just simply read our Bibles, we would actually be able to get it right. But because um, all of that isn't true at times, or all these things that we talked about, the Bible should be, it should be, if, if it's not true and, and these, all these things were made up, the Bible should be very easy to disprove. It really should. You should be able to look in the Bible and be like, see, that's not right. Yep, that's not right. That's not, that's not how it happened. Because if you look at the Bible, which is full of a bunch of books of ancient texts that people have collected over the years that were written hundreds of years apart, thousands of years ago, we should be able to go and say, look, in the Old Testament, these people said this was going to happen, 
and now we did not happen. Look, we can point to this, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. We, could, we should be able to easily do that, but here's what I find interesting. You can't really do it. I, I'm not a follower of Jesus today because of what I read in the New Testament. I'm actually a follower of Jesus because of what I read in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament continually predicts what is going to happen, and then astonishingly, when you read the New Testament, it happens. It, here's what's, what's incra- crazy about this. Isaiah, who we've been talking about throughout this entire series, um, Isaiah points to the, the birth of Messiah coming. And he does that 700 years before Jesus is ever born. We've been talking about this entire series. And Isaiah doesn't prophesy just a couple things. There's a hundred different prophecies that just Isaiah alone says, the Messiah is going to be this. You're going to see this sign. This is what's going to happen for the Messiah. Do you understand how unthinkable it is that a man can prophesy that many things about a Messiah coming, a hundred different things about the Messiah coming, predicting that, and it actually happens. And this isn't even including all the other prophecies in the Old Testament from other authors. There's 300 prophecies about the Messiah. Here's what it's like. I I did some research. Peter Stoner is a um, mathematics and astronomy professor, and he did all the math. Here's the math he, he determined. Just if you take just eight, of the biggest prophecies in, in the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, the eight, eight biggest ones, and for one person to achieve all eight of the prophecies that, that we see, the, the big ones, here are the odds of that happening by chance. The odds are one in, I don't even know this number, one followed by 17 zeros. That's the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies by chance. Here's what that's like. It'd be the equivalent of covering the whole state of Texas with silver dollars, two feet deep, and then expecting a blindfolded man to go across the the state to find one specific one. It'd be the same likelihood for just eight of them. You make that number 16 instead, which is still way less than it is, that is one in one followed by 45 zeros. I have no clue what that number is. Is that, can you even say that number? One in 40, with 45 zeros behind it. That's how unlikely it would be. And there aren't 16 prophecies that Jesus fulfills. There are 300 in the Old Testament that you can read for yourself. So when skeptics attack the integrity of the ancient text, they do that, they, they, they do that in order to dispute this, which I, I, I could go through the, the integrity of the ancient text, and we're actually going to do a whole series around Easter talking about the text and how they actually can be trustworthy. But they will attack the integrity of it because they can't just point to the Bible and say, look, this stuff didn't happen with Jesus, because it did. They, they have to do that because we simply cannot point to the prophecies being wrong in Jesus. It is scientifically and mathematically impossible for one person to fulfill the prophecies by chance. It can only be done by the working hand of God. And Isaiah, over and over again, predicted the Christmas story that a virgin will give birth to a son. And he will be called Emmanuel. A child will be born. A son will be given. But there's one passage that sticks out above the rest. There's one passage that could be considered, and, and some, some scholars believe that it is the most important passage in the Old Testament. One passage that predicts the Messiah with so much detail and so vivid that it feels impossible that somebody could have wrote it 700 years prior to it actually happening. And this passage has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus has nothing to do with the Christmas story, but instead has to do with his death. Here's what, Mas- what Isaiah writes 700 years prior to the Messiah being born in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read three verses of it, but the entire 
chapter is amazing. But here's the three verses. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was, catch these parts, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Jesus was ever born, Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would come, that how he would act, and why he would do it. And according to Isaiah, we, we learn two things here of the promised Savior. Who is the promised Savior? There's going to be two things according to Isaiah. Number one, a suffering servant. Isaiah says that he will be a man of suffering. He will be familiar with pain. He will be looked at with low esteem. Um, in high school, I'm not sure how your high school was. I went to Chapel Gate, which is right down the street, a private school. In my, in my high school, um, the guys that were there, there was only about 70 people in my class. So not a lot of people. It was a private school. Um, but in stereotypical high school fashion, especially when we were in ninth grade, the guys would just kind of form groups. And like, if you've ever seen a high school movie, you know the groups that would just naturally form. We had one group that people would consider a little more nerdy. That's, we had that group that was smart and just didn't dress in the, in the 2000s that we wear, wore, which was terrible anyways, but they just didn't dress that way, right? We have those people, that's the stereotypical ones. And then we have the stereotypical jocks who um, played sports and wore their jackets and, and that kind of stuff. And then we had the stereotypical stoners, and you would say, you went to a private school. And I'll go, yeah, they just, we just had rich stoners. There were still plenty of stoners there, but they were rich. So we had those people. And then we had another group of guys, just kind of how our high school was. We had another guys that were considered the forgettables, where, like, they, they didn't really fit into any of those, a little bit of, of all of them, but, but they, no one really remembered them. And I found myself, most of my high school, in that group. We were just kind of there. Like, I didn't really stick out a lot in high school. In fact, I went to my 10-year high school reunion, and again, there's only 70 people in my class, and there were multiple girls that were like, who, who are you? And I was like, okay, this is, I hate high school. So that happened. I found myself in that group, in the group that, like, didn't really stick out, like, didn't, no one remembered for a good thing or a bad thing, just kind of, oh, you went to my high school? Okay, cool, that's, that's fine. Like, the more forgettables. Jesus, if he went to my high school, that's what group he would have been in, the forgettables. He was the lowly servant. He was the lowly servant, which, if you think about it, doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're, if you're God and you're going to send the Messiah, why would you make him a lowly servant that, that doesn't really stick out all that much? If you send a Messiah as a mighty man of war, which is how most people expected him to come. A mighty man of war who's going to conquer things. He's going to take over when he shows up. That's someone that a group could follow. A guy who's going to come in, he's going to take over the government. He's going to fight. Like the, think of the liver king without steroids. That, if you don't know that, is Google him. So that's what you think of. That's what they thought was coming. The Messiah was going to show up, and he's going to take over. That's a, that's a savior that a lot of people could have followed back then. But instead, God sends this lowly servant who doesn't attack, who, who in fact doesn't take over the government, but allows the government to kill him. That's the Messiah. That's the promised Savior. There is no reason we should still be talking about this Jesus guy. None. He didn't lead some army on a conquest. 
he, he preached these radical messages about loving others, about putting other people first, about, about putting their needs first, and he constantly lift up people in society that no one else cared about, and then he was killed for it. We should not be talking about Jesus anymore. But yet, here we are. And yet, here you are. Whether you believe in it or not, here you are in a church talking about this Jesus guy who was the lowly servant who should have been forgotten, but he wasn't. Why was he not forgotten? Because there were other messiahs. There were other people that said they were the messiahs, and we aren't talking about them, but we're talking about this Jesus guy. Why wasn't he forgotten? It isn't because his message was so radical, which it was. It was a message that was, that was unbelievable for the time. It's not, that's not why we, we haven't forgotten him. We haven't forgotten him not because he made some big, big, his teachings were so revolutionary or even because he performed miracles. Here's why we have not forgotten this Jesus guy. Because people saw him die with their own eyes. And the people saw him come back to life three days later. They said, I didn't believe he was going to, and he did. And then people recorded it, and it completely changed them. They started living out this message, this message of being, okay, I'm following the Messiah who's the lowly servant, so I'm going to now be the lowly servant to everyone around. And these people who did not think he was actually going to come back, when they saw it with their own eyes, he died, I saw him die, three days later, like he said he would, he came back to life, I am now going to serve everyone else, I am now going to preach this message that gets me nothing in return, gives me no personal gain, but puts me at the lowest to bring everybody else up, I'm going to now follow that person. And then when the government talked to those people, the disciples, who saw it with their own eyes, says, hey, you have to stop talking about this Jesus guy, or we are going to kill you. They say, then kill me, because I have to keep talking about this, because I saw a guy die and come back to life three days later, and he kept talking about it, and the government said, you, seriously, if you don't stop, we are going to kill you. They said, we're not going to stop. And the government killed all of them in gruesome, terrible ways, and yet, here we are still talking about the lowly, suffering servant. You are here because people truly believe that Jesus died and was resurrected. And we're still talking about him because people truly believed it. And Isaiah said, this servant is going to suffer. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Because of our sins. Sin always brings suffering and shame. Anytime you have done things wrong, it brings suffering and shame in some capacity. And Jesus, the Savior, willingly took the suffering and shame that was meant for us, that he did not deserve. He took that so that we can now have hope. And Isaiah, 700 years prior, predicted it. He would be the suffering servant. That's not the only promise of a Savior. Here's the second promise. He'll also be a substitute. If you read the Old Testament, you will constantly read about sacrifices being made. And there's all these different types of sacrifices you can read about. But basically when an Israelite, and an Israelite was, was God's chosen people, that was God's group, when an Israelite did something wrong, when they sinned, when they turned their back on God, um, they would be required to make a sacrifice, a sacrifice of an animal. And the animal sacrifice would be a substitute for the Israelite's sin. For whatever that Israelite did wrong, it would be a substitute to the God, so that God's punishment would not go on them, but would go on the animal instead. It would cover their sins temporarily because they continue to sin, they continue to mess up, and so then they have to go and make another sacrifice, another sacrifice. That's how, if you read the Old Testament, you see it throughout the whole thing. And it wasn't just any animal that had to be sacrificed. It had to be a spotless animal with no defects. It had to be an animal that the person was offering, like it was sacrificing. It was, he had to surrender something 
uh, in order to do it. And the person had to also be the one to make the sacrifice. Actually had to do it. God wanted his chosen people to understand something very important. The result of sin is death. That's the result. And because of our sin, something has to die. That's how dangerous sin is, and that's how big of a deal sin is to a holy God. And sin isn't just, hey, blindly obey me. I'm the God, the dictator God. I'm going to strike you down if you don't. That's not what sin is. It is a loving God saying, I know what's best for you. I want to keep you and the people around you. I, I want you to, to, to be careful what you do. So I don't want you anything that's going to harm you or harm the people around you. That's what God wants us to do. And every time we do something that harms us or the people around us, that is sin. And in the Old Testament, that's something that had to die was an animal. When, when we sinned, something had to die, and the animal died instead of us. But Jesus, the Savior Isaiah prophesies about, would be the substitute for not only the animal, but for us. And 700 years prior to Jesus, Isaiah says that the Savior would take up our pain and our suffering, that he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Because of his wounds, we are healed. Because the punishment he took, we can now have peace. When John the Baptist uh, sees Jesus coming, he sees him walking, and John had been baptizing people over and over, and, and people are saying, are you the Messiah? He goes, no, 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 Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. And he sees G Jesus walking, and, and John records that John the Baptist goes, look, look, there he is. You see that guy? That's the Lamb of God right there. That's the Lamb of God, and he will take away all the sins of the world. Jesus was sent as the Messiah in a time in history where they had thought up the worst possible way for a government to kill someone. The worst possible way. Crucifixion was one of the worst ways to possibly do it. And Jesus became the substitute for all of us. Jesus gave his life for the forgiveness of our sins. So when we celebrate Christmas, we see this little innocent child. But this little innocent child will go on to suffer immense, unbearable pain to give you and I the gift of righteousness. What sets Christianity apart from every other religion? It's the death of an innocent victim predicted over a hundred times in history. God became us so that we can be with him. He was beaten so that we can be healed. He was pierced so that we can be whole. He was crushed so that we can be complete. And the reason we're all here today, you can come up, sorry. the reason we're all here today, and the reason why Christianity is still spreading throughout the world, the reason the name of Jesus is everywhere, the reason countless authors predicted Jesus coming in mathematically impossible fashion, verified by followers of Jesus and verified by secular historians, the reason for all of it is because Jesus died on a cross and rose again three days later. So when we celebrate Christmas, which is only a week away, we celebrate the season that we are remembering Jesus' birth. We celebrate Christmas. We are celebrating the hope that we have. But we don't allow the Christmas story to simply be a story that we tell our kids, that we set up our nativity stuff, that we sing songs about, but it doesn't really make any difference for us. It's not just a story. It's so much more. And the Christmas story is not the beginning, and it's also not the end. The Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, which leads to his death, which then leads to his resurrection. And because of that, 
you, no matter who you are, no matter what your past looks like, you can have hope, can have purpose, can have joy. Not because you are so good, not because I'm so good, not because of our power or any of the good deeds that we can do, and not by a religion. You, you can have hope and purpose and joy because the servant Savior was a substitute for you. So as we prepare in the worship team, you can start coming on up, get ready to close. As we get ready for the Christmas season, Christmas Eve is coming up on Saturday. We're in our next service at 2 o'clock. And then Saturday, on Christmas morning, we'll do our tradition. Some of you, you might have some traditions with the Christmas story. Um, for us, we have a nativity set that Jesus isn't there, and we put him in on Christmas Day. It's part of our thing. And we sing happy birthday to Jesus, which you would say, well, it's not his birthday. I'm like, yeah, shut up. I know I said that earlier, but you get it. But as we think about the story, I want you to think about how we can look at that story. It's not just, yeah, it's a fun story we tell our kids, and it's kind of almost like a make-believe story. But instead, what if we looked at that story? It's like, oh, this story leads to the hope that I don't deserve, to a purpose that I can't find anywhere else, to joy that I can't find in any earthly thing. Because this baby that we celebrated, and we are celebrating remembering, goes on to die, was back to life, and people live out the message of the lowly servant who we should not remember because they saw it. So as, as Isaiah predicted, that our wounds can be healed from the Savior, the suffering servant who is a substitute for us. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for the hope and joy and love that you give us people who do not deserve it. But I thank you for loving people like us, for coming and saving us, coming to our level so that we can now have a path towards you. As we get ready for Christmas coming up and we re remember and reflect the birth of you, I pray that you help us to not just make this a story, to make this a, a step towards you, towards the hope that only you can offer us. Thank you for saving us. In your son's name, amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song.